Hello, my name is Rhonda Morris, and I'm the Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Chevron. I am here with my colleague, Morgan Krinklaw, who is a General Manager in our Corporate Affairs Organization. Morgan will share with you four leadership lessons he has learned over the course of his career. I've been fortunate to have worked with and learned from some great leaders over the course of my career. Each of them has taught me valuable lessons that have helped me grow both personally and professionally. There are four key lessons I've learned that I've shared with my teams over the years. The first is the value of mentorship. Whether formal or informal, there is so much you can gain from talking with a trusted mentor about your career path, challenges, barriers, and potential opportunities. I've had mentors both within Chevron and outside the company that have provided me with great perspectives. Second, I learned that I am in control of my career. Large organizations can seem difficult to navigate career-wise, especially as a new hire. Rather than sit and wait to be tapped on the shoulder for a new role or opportunity, you should approach your career plan like you're planning a vacation. Start with the destination in mind and then work your way backward on how you're going to get there. I like to tell my teams to start by identifying what they want their last job to be and then identify all of the roles within the organization they think can get them there. While the destination may change over time, it gives you a plan to work from. The third lesson I've learned is that relationships are the key to success. It is vital to form relationships within your own function and in other functions within your organization to be most effective. And those relationships should be more than simply transactional. They should be cultivated over time. You never know when you're going to need to leverage those relationships for help, advice, or to get out of a jam. And fourth, I've learned that you have to have a point of view. When you get a seat at the table, whatever table that may be, from a team meeting to a meeting with senior executives, you should have a point of view. I know it can be intimidating. No one wants to ask the stupid question, especially if you are newly hired into the organization. But I've learned that senior managers and executives value and appreciate those that speak up with a point of view. And chances are, if you're invited to that table, you're there for a reason. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I'd like to welcome all of you who are joining us for the first time and to take a quick moment to summarize the ambitions of our show. The fundamental premise is that our longstanding traditional workplace leadership practices are doing far more harm than good. Employee engagement around the globe is absurdly low. Turnover in many countries set records over the past few years, and organizational productivity is declining, not improving. Just a few weeks ago, a report from McKinsey showed that companies pay dearly by having unmotivated workers. In their words, employee disengagement and attrition is costing median-sized S&P 500 companies between $228 and $355 million a year in lost productivity. So our podcast is dedicated to introducing you to cutting edge thinkers, researchers, academics, and even CEOs whose work proves we need a complete reinvention of our workplace practices, ones that specifically and intentionally elevate employee well-being and thriving. We've been at this for five years now and have a rich catalog of conversations with brilliant guests whose insights add up to proving that the more support and care workplace managers provide their people, the greater performance they can expect from those very same people. The name of our podcast matches the name of my book. 
Medical science and other research have shown that we human beings aren't anywhere near as rational in our decision-making as we've always believed, a topic we will be discussing in this very episode, actually, and are largely influenced by feelings and emotions. This knowledge alone should change our views of how to inspire our employees to perform. How workplace managers make people feel actually plays a profound role in their overall success. If you'd like to know more about the emerging science that proves our hearts play a surprising role in influencing human behavior, I invite you to read my book, which so far has been taught in 11 American universities. As for the future of this show, to include the episode you're about to hear, you should know that our guest selection process is exceedingly disciplined and has an extremely high bar. My goal has always been to blow your mind a bit with every episode and to introduce you to uncommon ways of thinking about leadership that will immediately and sustainably elevate your effectiveness as a manager at whatever level you may be at today. Very early in my career, I remember being impressed by the idea that when we improve one discipline in our lives, we automatically improve all discipline in our lives. Suffice to say, all of my guests are likely to teach you things that will enhance your overall lives, not just your effectiveness in managing other human beings. Moving on, today's show is devoted to helping you better understand the importance of curating a workplace or team culture rather than allowing one to form on its own. My guest happens to be a world expert on the topic. Dr. Marcus Collins today is a professor of marketing at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Previously, he led social media marketing at Translation, a cutting edge advertising agency founded by Jay-Z and Beyonce. And he was the head of strategy at the Wyden and Kennedy Agency in New York. He was recently named to the Thinkers 50 and Deloitte class of 2023's radar list of 30 thinkers whose ideas are most likely to shape the future. And Amazon just named his new book, For the Culture, the power behind what we buy, what we do, and who we want to be, one of the best books of the year so far in 2023. In Marcus's own words, if you want to get people to move, there's no vehicle more powerful or influential than culture. Full stop. Culture is how we inspire people to act. With that being his premise, let's now dig into what he specifically means and how you can directly apply that knowledge. Welcome to the podcast, Marcus Collins. Thanks so much for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you and I want to get right to it here, particularly framing up this whole idea of culture. So I want to go to the beginning of your book. And you specifically set things up by asking three questions. So number one, what is culture exactly? Two, why does it have such a powerful effect on people? And three, how might a leader or manager leverage the power of culture to influence collective behavior and inspire people to move? So I'm thinking you're probably guessing that we're going to dig deeper into this, but I just think this is a great place for us to start. So can you take us one at a time and give us an introduction to your main conclusions? Absolutely. So I believe that there's no external force more influential to human behavior than culture, full stop. And you hear that, you probably go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The challenge, however, is that if you ask five people to define culture, you'll get 55 different answers, and that's a problem. So the notion here is that we need a better Rosetta Stone, we need a better language to describe this thing so we might be able to harness its power. So what is it? Your first question, what is culture? I think about culture through a sociological lens, particularly borrowing from 
Emil Durkheim, a Durkheimian view on culture. And to paraphrase, it's a system, a system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and what people like us do. It's a system of what's expected of people like us based on acceptable beliefs, artifacts, behaviors, language, and shared work. And so that's what culture is. And it's anchored in our identity, who we are. And because of who we are, we see the world a certain way. We hold a set of truths in our collective minds, a communal view of reality. And we tell ourselves stories about the world because of these shared beliefs. And because of who we are, we see the world the way we do. And therefore, we navigate the world a certain way, a shared way of living, a shared way of life because of this worldview. So we don certain artifacts, we behave in concert, we speak a certain way, and then we express our cultural subscription through shared works, television, film, music, literature, art, podcasts, comic books, music videos, brands and branded products. These all become ways by which we express who we are, but also reflect what people like us ought to do. So that's what culture is. And why is it so influential on human behavior? Because culture is the governing operating system of humanity. Culture is the lens by which we see the world and therefore translate the world. That means what we do, we don't do it because of what these things are. We do it because of who we are. Who are we? We are our cultural subscription. And I even go as far as to say that consumption at its core is a cultural act. What we buy, what we wear, where we go, what we do, what we drive, where we go to school, who we marry, if we marry, where we vacation, what we eat, where we bury the dead, if you bury the dead. All these things are byproducts of our cultural subscription. And that's why it's so, so influential, these systems, these conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are, what people like us do. So how then do we tap into them? How then do we harness its power? Well, if the literature is any indication and and all the case studies that we have at our disposal of brands, people, individuals, institutions, organizations who have leveraged culture successfully, we tap into it, we engage with it by participating in it. That we find where there is congruence, cultural congruence between the way we see the world as a brand, an entity, an organization, an institution, a company and the way people see the world. And it's through shared ideology, shared beliefs that we find commonality. And it's through this idea of we see the world similarly, therefore we're more alike than we are the same. And culture moves forward on the basis of one simple question. Do people like me do something like this? The answer is yes, we do it. The answer is no, we don't. We make that decision hundreds, if not thousands of times a day, not because of what these things are, but because of who we are, which makes culture unbelievably powerful when it comes to its impact on human behavior. That was incredible. I mean, to be that concise and be that articulate and be that descriptive, I'm just in awe. So thank you, because you just completely solved the puzzle by setting (laughs) it up this way. But it made me wonder, when you talk about this system, and you know, we're applying... I mean, you have this magnificent marketing background, and I'm asking you and have asked in advance that we really focus on applying your understanding of culture to 
how organizations operate and how managers and leaders and companies can influence their people in ways to behave in a certain way, right? I mean, that's in terms of how they achieve goals and how they interact with one another and how they interact with customers and what they stand for, their values and all those kinds of things. So my big question then is, and I don't even know if you have an answer for this, but what percentage of organizations do you think are really that intentional in terms of defining who we are? and our shared beliefs and our ideology. Yeah, I think that many organizations have good intentions, but aren't as intentional because they don't really understand or at least have the language to describe culture concretely. I think that with regards to organizations, we tend to think about like what's going on, what are people doing? And that is a shortcut to how we think about culture. That like, you know, how are people feeling? What are people up to? What are they doing? That is an indication of our culture, or they'll say that is our culture, or, you know, or at worst, we say we have a foosball table in the kitchen. We have a great culture here, you know? mm-hmm. but it's the lack of the clarity, the lack of the foundational, concrete understanding that makes even good intentions be anemic. It makes the lack of concreteness make good intentions be sort of mediocre, unfortunately. And though you have amazing HR practitioners, amazing people and culture practitioners, without having a really strong understanding and construction, a rubric that makes up what these things are, those attentions don't get us to optimized outcomes. So let me go broad and then we'll go deep. We've seen in just the last two and a half years, 120 million people in America specifically quit their jobs during what will always be remembered is the great resignation. Mm-hmm. We're not certain that this is over, but this is our point in time. And research on employee engagement at the same time shows that people's happiness at work remains at undesirable levels, and it really isn't improving much. So do you believe a greater emphasis? So you mentioned HR, you mentioned senior leaders here a second ago. Do you believe that a greater emphasis and commitment to organizational culture could make a more meaningful improvement on these fronts? Like, is it a remedy or is it just something that helps people have a better understanding of true north? Well, I think if I were to look at it through this lens, I would say that the challenge really is the role that work plays in our life. And that if we see work in our place of work as a transactional relationship, unless you are winning, unless you are dominating that exchange, that is you are getting your way overpaid and you have all, you know, all the perks in the world. Mm-hmm. In those cases, you're always going to have a sort of contentious relationship with your employer because it's a zero sum game in that way. How do I get as much as I can by giving as least as possible? Right. But when the organization, the company, your work is meaningful, that is full of meaning, the value of rubric is just different. It's not, am I getting all this stuff for the money that I'm getting? It's not transactional. There are all these other parts of us that are being satiated, that are being nourished. And when that happens, we just review it through a different rubric. Psychologists talk about this idea, there being an altruistic center and a pleasure center. And those things, they don't coexist at the same time. Those those systems of our brain can't coexist at the same time. And that is, say you're like, hey, Marcus, I'm moving this weekend. Can you help me move? And I go, oh, man, you go, I'll buy soda and pizza. And I go, okay, Mark, fine, I'll do this for you, buddy. But if you say, hey, Marcus, I'm moving this weekend. 
Can you help me move? I'll pay you three bucks an hour. I go, oh, buddy, no way. Mm -hmm. My time is much more than that. That is, I look at social dynamics different than I do marketplace dynamics. And when we think about work as a marketplace dynamic, there's always going to be a tension there. But if I look at work as an opportunity for me to fulfill something that's far greater than what I get paid, that's something that's far greater than me as an individual, the calculus is just different. And in that way, work becomes much more powerful. And that is, we think about how we measure people's their disposition about work, whether they feel fulfilled at work. If it's just a paycheck, it's like, as long as they pay me when I'm supposed to get paid, I guess I'm happy. I guess I'm fine, not happy. But when it's like, you know, I feel like I'm contributing to something that's just far bigger than who I am, it's a much more powerful relationship. I've heard it referred to once as the bricklayer's parable. See you on the side of the street and they go, well, Mark, what are you doing? You go, I'm laying bricks, Marcus. Well, you have a job. You lay bricks. Right? You're a bricklayer. But if I drive down the street and I see you laying bricks, I go, Mark, what are you doing? And you go, oh, I'm building a church. Oh, well, you have a, you have a career. You build churches, right? But if I see you on the side of the street laying bricks, I go, Mark, what are you doing, man? And you go, oh, I'm building the house of God. Well, you have a calling. And a purpose. Mm -hmm. And a purpose, exactly. Which Mark is more excited about coming to work every day? The one with the calling, the one with the purpose. It's not transactional in nature. I do this to get that. It's like, I do this so I can achieve that. And I think that during the pandemic, people just saw the world through different frames. People, I think, became aware of their mortality in a way that was much more tangible than before for many of us. And because of that, we asked ourselves, is my time worth this? Is my time realizing how finite it is? Is my time worth the transaction relations that I'm part of right now? A piece of my life is really what you're referring to. Exactly. Because if I'm now, I'm not working for something greater, there isn't you know, a calling here, there isn't a, anything more meaningful than just my hours for this time, then I go, I'm just going to try to optimize my ratio of hours to time. So if I can feel into my audience right now all around the world, my intuition tells me that they're saying a guy couldn't be any more accurate. And I hope Mark asks him, how do I do this? How do I specifically help people find meaning in their work? Yeah. So you've taken us down this road, so you have to, <laughs> you have to deliver us to the promised land. <laughs> well, it goes to the question you started with. How do we engage in culture? I mean, culture, culture is the way by which we see the world and translate it. Therefore, when we're looking at the world, and we're only talking specifically in the States based on the cultural frames of work here in the States, right? So through that cultural lens, people are making the, that calculus based on their cultural lens. So how do we rectify this or how do we remove these points of friction? We engage in culture, which starts with how do we see the world? As an organization, what do we believe beyond making widgets? What do we believe? How do we see the world? And the idea then is that we engage people based on a shared worldview as opposed to a transactional opportunity. And I think I write about this in my book, For the Culture. I write about this relative to GE. A few years back, GE did this campaign called What's the Matter with Owen? And the idea was that GE is a company, you know, it believes in writing the future. Even when the co-founder, Thomas Edison, said, I go out and see what people need and I go invent it. 
I go invent the future. I go make the future. And GE's been telling us that for decades, if not centuries, in its existence. You know, we bring good ideas to life. You know, imagination at work. These are all signifiers of what GE believes, this idea of writing the future, building the future. So this campaign, which was a national campaign, an HR you know, recruitment uh, vehicle as an HR function, national marketing advertising campaign. And the idea was this. Owen got a new job at GE, but no one understands what Owen does because they think about GE as a place where trains and, and these industrial things are made not a company that's dedicated to building the future, to rewriting the future. And just like GE, Owen believes the same thing. He got a job at GE because he's going to write the future. But no one understands it. His parents don't understand him. His friends don't understand him. But at GE, we get it because we see the world the way you do. So he read in this campaign with these different vignettes of his friends not understanding what he does at GE. And they ran this campaign. It says, you know, get a world-changing career at GE. Here's the website. According to the CMO at the time, GE saw an 800% increase in job applications. No mention of salary, no mention of 401k, no mention of any of the value propositions, the transactional things that we use to sweeten the deal. Everything about point of view, everything about conviction, everything about ideology, belief, the way the brand sees the world. And because of that, people want to find a home, not a job, not lay bricks, but people want to build the house of God. And that is unbelievably powerful. And that's the advice I'd give to organizations. What do you believe? How do you see the world? Preach the gospel to the people who see the world the way you do. That's how we leverage the power of culture from an organizational perspective. One question I have about GE is, and I remember seeing that ad, so when I was reading it, I thought, this is actually a brilliant piece of advertising. Because they were also going after people that were technically oriented. That's right. And those people were thinking, hey, I'm going to Google and I'm going to go to Microsoft. Why would I go to GE? So they, they did this brilliant job. But the question I have is, were they able to hold it? Were they able to sustain it? In other words, was the brand promise that they were putting on television football games matched up by what the reality was when people actually took jobs with GE? Like, did the culture match what they were promising? Yeah, that's a good question. So that's a really good shout. And that's the right question to ask because good advertising gets people in the door, but it don't keep people to stay. What keeps people to stay is when it's real. And so we had to look at the retention numbers to get an understanding of that. But that's a great point to make. It's not about how do I take these things to manipulate someone because it's not real. The idea is how do I leverage what's true about who we are and communicate it both implicitly and explicitly in such a way that it talks to the right people and convince them to adopt behavior. In my career, I worked for a couple of financial institutions, banks principally, and one of them was acquired by a company that suddenly went on this massive acquisition campaign and started buying up banks all over the country. Hmm. And in the process, what happened was they buy Bank X and Bank Y and Bank Z, and they all have their own cultures, but the organization that was doing the acquiring had the culture that they wanted to sustain. Mm. And so somebody accurately, smartly, I think at the time the CEO said, 
If we don't redefine who we are, if we don't clarify the values that we have and the behaviors that we're expecting and how we're going to operate as an organization and clarify it for all the people that are coming on board, they're just going to sustain the culture they're familiar with. That's right. And so what they did was they went to a whole bunch of people within the organization who had been there, who weren't just there for a long time, but who, A, demonstrated great competency, like they were great employees. And they asked those people specifically to identify what the values were of the organization that could be then transported to everyone else. And so what effectively they did was to define it and to, does this feel right to you? Is this who we are? Do we want to be someone else? Should we add some aspiration into this? And so they ended up hiring people that actually did these formal presentations. A very good friend of mine actually created the whole thing. And they did these brand rallies around the entire organization. And they told everyone, you know, clean the whiteboard, clean your memory. This is who we are. And it actually worked brilliantly, which led me to asking you the GE question was because they actually meant it. Like they went through this exercise to say, this is who we want to be. I remember I was at Google one day and one of the people that I was with said that they had just gotten up and talked to a new employee and said, you know, that wasn't very googly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. You know, and so that is an example, another example of this. So I'm setting all of this up to ask you, what's the process? So if I'm an organization and I'm listening to this, I'm, I'm a leader in an organization and I'm thinking, we don't really have a very clear culture. And we don't even have values. We don't even really have any shared norms are expressed and reinforced. What are the steps? How do I get there? So you've uncovered so much here. I think the one thing I would, I would start with before I get into that is back to the GE idea is that if it's not real, when the advertising stops running, you see a very large drop of people walking in the door. Because what you really want, the best advertising to do, is to just catalyze a network effect. That the advertising sparks groups of people, but then those groups of people become the advertising for the brand because they start to evangelize and say, man, I'm really building the future here. And it does what the ads were doing, but through the voice of the worker, which I think is really powerful. But when it's not true, you get the opposite, right? People dog the brand or... <laughs> At best, you just get a massive revolving door. So, so if you don't have a culture, if you don't have a salient culture, one that we have identified, because there is a culture there for sure, it's just not one that has been curated, right? Like, yeah, it, it happens organically, right? That's but it, right. but it, it may not be what you want, right? That's right. Exactly. The culture may be, hey, you know, we check out. You know, as soon as the boss goes, we're out of here. You know, we have to do things, we do just enough to get by. Like that's culture. Those are byproducts of culture, but they are not desirable. So I would tell folks who are in that situation to start with what do we believe? Not what do we want to believe, but what do we believe? How do we see the world? What is our collective understanding of truth? And that may seem like a trite question to ask but it will frame every single decision you make going forward. So be very discerning about it. Well, what do you believe? Simon Sinek talks about it as having a why. I like that language. I think about it as having a conviction. 
And I call it a conviction as opposed to just a belief because a conviction, it connotes the idea that you stand for something. What are we willing to stand for, even if we're the only ones? What are we willing to stand for, even if it means we're going to lose money? What are we willing to stand for because we think it's right and we think it's true? And it's that conviction, it's that belief that then says, okay, because we believe this, therefore we treat each other this way. Because we believe this, therefore we talk to each other this way. Therefore, because we believe this, we adorn ourselves a certain way. And therefore, because we believe this, we tell certain stories. All the folklore and all the folkways and all the mores become byproducts of our belief system. So that's where you start. What do we believe? It's interesting because I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, I've actually worked with people who didn't want to say, this is what I stand for. (laughs) Because, do you know where I'm going with this? Oh, yeah. Because (laughs) if you stand for something, that means you got to be against something. Yeah. And you're (laughs) going to create conflict with somebody and somebody's going to go, why do you believe that? And it becomes an aggravation. And you kind of go, well, you know what? If I just play it in the middle and I don't disclose, I don't have to annoy anyone. I'm going to have a bigger pie. Do you see this in leadership where people are unwilling to stake a claim? Yeah, exactly. I love the way you said it, the middle. And I think that the idea is that the middle is safe. The middle is where the average person is, the normal person is. And and we therefore think that because most people are in the middle, let's play towards the middle. But here's the truth about the middle. The middle is not real. The middle, it is a myth. It is a a Loch Ness monster. (laughs) And here's why. Everyone in the middle is practicing a risk aversion strategy. Mm -hmm. Every single person in the middle. That's why they're there. That's why they find comfort in norms, right? They can find comfort in the bigger group. Therefore, they practice a risk aversion strategy, which means they're not the first to buy your album. They're not the first to watch the show. They're not the first to download the app. They're not the first to vote. They're not the first to do anything because that would be risky. Therefore, they wait to see what everybody else is doing. Instead, the idea is to find the collective of the willing, the people that are more inclined to move, more inclined to adopt a policy, more inclined to buy the thing first, more inclined to vote, more inclined to do the thing that you want people to do. Why? They're not doing it because of what the thing is. They're doing it because of who they are. They do it because doing so is a demonstrative representation of their identity, of their belief system. You all see the world congruently. Just like GE talks to the Owens of the world, you, Sid Company, are talking to the people inside the organization who see the world the way you do. And those people go, finally, someone said it. And then they act in concert, not because of what it is, but because of who they are. And then they go convince the people in the middle. I'm listening to you, and I remember this story that you told in the book, and it's more of a marketing thing, but it really completely punctuates what you're talking about. So let me set it up. And we've got an audience all over the world. So there's a former National Football League quarterback named Colin Kaepernick, and people in America will remember him to protest racial injustice in the United States. He chose to kneel instead of stand during the playing of America's national anthem at the beginning of a game. And this act led many people in the country to be outraged and also many others to to use the language in your book, stand with cap. So he had solidarity and he had people completely angry as hell at him. 
And it's been a controversial topic of conversation ever since in sports. In fact, he's never been brought back onto any NFL team. So there's still lots of controversy around this. Nevertheless, athletic apparel company Nike that everyone in the world knows, they went on to produce an advertisement on television that featured Kaepernick and intentionally celebrated what they thought was his courageous behavior. And of course, that cost him his NFL career and angered the same people who were originally offended by his action. And this group even went out and, you know, ceremonially burned all their Nike attire publicly so everybody could see that they swore off Nike for the rest of their lives. But this was the punchline for me that deserves conversation in terms of creating a culture that stands for something, a, a brand that stands for something. He said, but what many people don't likely know is that these ads led to a $6 billion market increase for the Nike brand. So they intentionally stood for something and excluded a whole bunch of people who will never wear Nike again. But the people who were on board with what they did came in droves to support them and made them more profitable than they'd ever been before. So reiterate, punctuate why you do not want to play it safe with your cultures. Absolutely. One thousand percent. I mean, the idea is just you find people who see the world the way you do and they're going to act not because of what you are, what you're asking them to do, but because of who they are. And this is why culture is anchored in identity. You know, which Alex do you think is more committed to running? Alex who likes to run or Alex who's a runner? The latter, for sure. The latter. Alex who's a runner is going to wake up in the morning, 4, 4.30 in the morning when it's raining outside and it's cold and he, she, or they are tired. And they're like, I got to run because this is who I am and this is what we do. Someone who likes to run go, I'm too tired, right? This isn't about like our affinity towards a thing. It's about who we are. And when we activate people who see the world the way we do, those people are more inclined to take action. They're more inclined to move. And as a result, they go preach the gospel on our behalf. And that is just unbelievably powerful. How did you learn that? You know what? I learned this through failure. <laughs> and I write about this in the book. I had the fortunate pleasure of working for Beyonce, doing digital strategy for her and her I Am Sasha Fierce days, which is a great time to be in the Beyonce business. Never a bad time. That was my question. When was the bad time? Right? Yes. Yeah. Never a bad time, but definitely a good time. And you know, we were launching her online fan club through social networking platforms, and we launched the thing, and it wasn't successful you know, relative to her celebrity, relative to her you know bright wattage of a persona. It just was not analogous, and we were concerned. But then we realized across the web there was a group of people who called themselves the Beehive, who not only were fans of Beyonce. That's the smaller part but that they saw the world the way Beyonce does. They believed in women's empowerment, which Beyonce has been preaching since she was in Destiny's Child, right? For the span of, of her 25-year career. Like, she, she, this is who she is. 30-year career, even. This is who she is. So the idea, then, is that these people were realizing their ideology as expressed through Beyonce's cultural production, her music. And they had their own set of artifacts, behaviors, and language. It's like, oh, whoa, they're a community with associated culture, not people who just happen to like the music. So the team cut bait on the thing we were building and focused on facilitating community. That is, we found people who saw the world the way she does 
and we activated them accordingly. And that has been one of the biggest differentiators in Beyonce as an artist than most artists. We saw this in full swing this summer with Beyonce and Taylor Swift. These are two people who have transcended their category. They're not just artists, not just singers, not just performers. They both have their own brand of feminism. And the people who were first in line to buy tickets to both of those artists were Swifties and the Beehive, respectively. Not because of what these concerts were going to be, but because of who they were. It's like the people who sign up for Coachella before they even know who the artists are going to be. Like They're there because this is what people like them do. And once I learned that, it was a bell that couldn't unring. No question. I'm just thinking that. And I hope that this bell is being rung because it's not common understanding what you're describing. And, you know, sometimes we find the best lessons in failure. And while I do count that as a failure, for me, based on what I was charged to do, I learned so much. It was a transformative experience for me. Let me ask you about that. We had Amy Evanson on just recently, right as her new book about failure came out. Yeah. And you just said, you know, we don't like to have failure. What's it like to fail when you're working for Jay-Z and Beyonce? <laughs> because I think we all do fail and we all struggle and we think we're the only one. Yeah. And we're embarrassed and ashamed and we feel like, you know, I don't want to stick my neck out again. But here you are thriving in your career. What went through your mind and heart in terms of how to respond to letting down Beyonce? Oh, well, it was scary AF. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, all right. Fear. Okay. Fear was running through my mind and my heart. <laughs> but get back to the idea of culture in that even though explicitly there wasn't a stated belief that like, yo, know, we take risks and we try things and if it doesn't work, we learn from them. The CEO, President Matthew Knowles of the record label and the, the management company that represented Beyonce for whom I worked called Music World, his disposition was great. We learned a lot. Now, don't make the mistake again and use that learning to make the next thing better, to mitigate potential failure in the future. And his disposition in that way sort of absolved me of what felt like dread, which felt like failure to reframe this, to reposition mm -hmm. this. It's like you just learned a really good lesson. Go. Not just in terms of, okay, let's take our lesson and leverage it, but you also learned a great leadership lesson because if that guy had come and said, you're fired, or I don't know what you just did here, but you realize you just screwed up for Beyonce and ruined her reputation. I mean, you know, on and on and on, it could have gone. That's right. So it's the combination of having somebody have the presence of mind to say, okay, this isn't the way we want it to go, but let's take what we just learned and let's go make it better. And that's like a wonderful combination, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And if he hadn't done that, I'd probably be less likely to take risks in that job and even further down the line. And this is an important thing is that Innovation requires risk. Ideation requires risk. Creativity requires risk. And if the implicit cultural norms of the organization, the implicit cultural beliefs of the organization is that risk is not tolerated, then you are choking off the potential for creativity and innovation. And the more explicit they are, the more likely people are going to put more licensed and more likely people are to bump into things and try things out and stumble over them. And what's even more 
is that when they're explicit about this is what we believe and this is the system of conventions that we want to foster in this organization, they become the stories you tell in the organization. They become the hero stories, mm-hmm. the lore, the mythology. That's great. It's like, yo, you know Marcus failed big time, right? But guess what happened because of it? And like when that becomes the stories, the refrain, that the echoes in the hall, then people not only feel licensed to take risk, they almost feel obligated to take risk. Now you're creating a hotbed of innovation, at least the antecedent that gets us to innovation. That's fantastic. There were certain parts of your book where I was like, use your language, hallelujah. (laughs) (laughs) And so there was a lot of that. But one of the foundational ideas of this podcast is that people are not the rational beings that we've always been told we were. We pride ourselves on our analysis of how we rationally think about things. And the truth is feelings and emotions drive most of the decision-making we do and most of the actions that we take in life. And so I can honestly say, as I was reading it, because this is like halfway through your book, I'm like, okay, I'm not surprised to see him articulate this, but I was thrilled to see you confirm it. And so I want to read this for the audience, and this uh, might pique their interest to read the rest of the book. So here's what you say. While we love to think of ourselves as being Spocks, especially in business settings, we are far from it. We are not rational human beings. We are rationalizing human beings. We make most of our decisions based on shortcut heuristics that are informed by the emotional tags we place on our memory associations, which informs how we feel and ultimately what we do. The truth of the matter is we know what decisions we're going to make before we make them based on how we feel. After that, we cherry pick the data to support our feelings. I just love this, but it gets better. So in psychology, you say this is called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, a cognitive bias in which we ignore the information that differs from our perspective and choose the data that supports it. The bias is based on the metaphor of the gunman who shoots at the wall and then draws the target around the bullet holes afterwards. This is an absolutely brilliant description, big part of my whole leadership thesis. So your bottom line is that our behaviors are biologically connected to our feelings. And so if we want to get people to move, we should appeal to the emotional side of people that informs their behavior. So I'm going to just like give you the stage, let you riff on this and tell us how we can do this specifically. Oh, man, I mean, you, you said it. <laughs> you, you said it. We're emotional creatures, just what we are. And whether it's right or wrong, doesn't matter. Is in our wiring. And therefore, there's a big lesson to learn there. And that the idea is we don't convince people through the rationality. We don't convince people through the facts. We convince people through the evocative, through the affective, the affects that people have. And I like the way C.C. Chapman from Babson College, who I, I cite him in the book, he says that you got to start with the soul and end with the sale. Like you start with the evocative, you start with the emotional, right? You start with what people believe, how they see the world. And it's interesting, you know, in a corporate setting, we talk about like, follow your passions. What are you passionate about? Right? But passion, you know, we actually, we use it colloquially, but the meaning of passion has religious, a religious connotation. The etymology of passion, it means to suffer, right? Like the passion of the Christ. So we talk about like, you know, go after your passion, what we really mean to say is go after what you're willing to suffer for. Like, I feel this convicted about it. I'm willing to suffer for it. I'm willing to lose money for it. I'm willing to lose employees for it. I'm willing to lose market share 
because I believe in it that fervently. And like, that's what we use to activate people. That's the soul. So we start with that emotional part of the brain that is the part of the brain that resides in our chest, the heart, and we activate them there. And then we provide the rational benefits or the rational arguments that help them support their decisions so that they don't feel like they just made an emotional decision. Who want, No one wants to say, oh man, you made that emotional decision. It makes you feel weak. It makes you feel like you know you aren't intelligent. And no one wants to feel that. But if there's ways to justify it in ways that are rational, because you can rationalize anything almost, then that becomes a really powerful strategy. And it creates levers by which leaders can pull to help get people to adopt behavior. And whether you're, you have marketer in your title or not, we are all marketers. Because marketers are people who go to market in an effort to get people to move. They go to the people to get people to adopt behavior. And we're all trying to get people to adopt behavior. Whether it's to buy something, to vote, try to get my kids to eat the vegetables. Like we're all trying to get people to do something. So the idea then is that the emotional, which is anchored in our ideologies and beliefs, become the best way by which we can do that. So the word courage, coincidentally, has its root in the word curve, which is French for heart. Ah. Put your head of marketing hat on. And you're advising organizations on culture. And you're saying, okay, which side of this argument are you guys going to be on? Which side of this issue are you going to be on defining your values as either this or the opposite, if you will? Sometimes there's gray, but for this example, we're just assuming that you're having to make a stand. Yeah. How do you get managers, particularly CEOs, to stomach the pain of alienating people, maybe even alienating people in their own company. Like, we're going west. West? Like, when did we decide we were going to go west? I didn't join this company to go west. So how do you get a CEO to say, hey, maybe some of the people that here were going west are going to have to drop off in order for you to get where you want to go to? How do you convince them that this is in their best interest instead of saying, because I have another question related to just our queasiness about taking this all very seriously. Yeah. Well, you know, I say it this way. When we get down to a hardcore belief, the question you ask the leader is, do you really believe it? Because if you really believe it, you got to act against it. If you don't believe it, then that's not what you believe. Like, do you really believe? And when we get to the thing for which we are willing to suffer, right? When we get to the thing that is so tethered to who we are and our identity. When we get there, they should be of the mind that I'm willing to burn the boats on this one. I'm willing to lose everything because that's just how much I believe in it. And when you get them there, they're able to make those decisions. But if they are still hand wrangling and whole humming and I'm not sure, then that's not the thing that they believe in. You got to get to the thing. What are you willing to burn the boats for? You know, what's your Martin Luther letter that you're going to nail to the door of the church? Like the thing that you are going to protest, the thing that you just feel so, so strong about. Um, because what the saying goes, if you can't stand for anything, you'll fall for everything. And, you know, so I, I tell a lot of marketers, hey, listen, don't treat your marketing strategy like Law & Order SVU. Like you're not pulling from the headlines and saying, that's what we're going to care about. No, 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 we're not doing that, right? I'm not following what the news headline says. Instead, we're following what do we believe. And we use that as a North Star to guide all of our decisions. As I look around the world, there aren't that many Eve Schwenard 
CEOs out there. Nope. You know, the CEO of Patagonia, yeah. who, I mean, everything is values-based. I mean, everything that they do is values-based. And they've got one of the clearest, most compelling cultures and aficionados all around the world because of it. That's right. And they did the work to say, this is who we are and this is what we're going to be, even if it means losing money. This is what we're going to do. And it's interesting because anytime you point to Yaman Chouinard and the Patagonia as a brand, there's always like a, yeah, but, yeah, but every excuse why they're so different. It's like, well, I'll tell you why they're different because they go to the gym and they do it. You know, it's like, and everybody wants the results. Everyone wants a six pack. Every single person wants a six pack, but we're not all willing to do the crunches, right? And this is the idea here is that if we want the success that we see in other companies, well, you have to emulate the process to get the outcomes. And what is the process? The process is discipline. The process is conviction. The process is our willingness to act on our conviction, even when it hurts. That's your gospel. Use your language. That's the message you're giving CEOs. Amen. And- and okay, all right, all right good. Because I mean, I want my audience to hear this. This is controversial in some respects, but it's also completely intuitive when you think about it and you think about our own behavior and the things that we respond to and inspire us and get us excited about. It's having that clarity and of clarity of not just who you are, but who you aren't. So and that's the paradoxical part right there is that we all know this. What I'm saying is it's not new news. This isn't Walter White's blue meth here. This isn't Breaking Bad, <laughs> not creating something new here. I'm just sort of putting it in a frame that pokes a hole in sort of our traditional conventions about work. But we know this as human beings. We know this as individuals who cohabitate this earth. And the urge, the plea is that keep your human hat on when you are in your organizations, right? Batman and Bruce Wayne are the same people. They just wear different outfits. And the same thing goes with you. You are a human outside your organization, just as you are inside of one. Keep your human hat on. Love it. Change gears with me and talk about the importance of perfecting our communications. This is something that is so important to me. What I mean is thinking through how everything that you're putting out is going to land in the minds and the hearts of people. So your audience, like anticipating, I say this, how are they going to feel? I respond with this, how are they going to feel? Could I alter my communication in a way that makes people likely to feel the way I want them to? Mm -hmm. You emphasize this, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you. What I'm just trying to do in this book is help us see the world differently because I think things aren't the way they are. They are the way that we are. And if we want the world around us to change, if we want the world around us to shift, then we have to shift first. When Lauren Hill says, how are you going to win if you ain't right within? You know, because <laughs> it starts mm -hmm. with us. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to start with the way that we see the world and these perspectives, these tools, these provocations, they're all in hope of us seeing the world differently and therefore behaving differently. While we're on the subject, tell us the great importance of cultivating empathy in this process. So like seeking to understand how other people are thinking and feeling in general. Yeah, I would say you cannot engage in culture without being empathetic because empathy is the act of perspective taking in an effort to gain a better understanding of how people see the world. And the truth of the matter is that the world is not objective, it's subjective. Right? Things aren't the way they are. They are the way that we are. And because of that, if we come to that truth, we go, oh, man, like, you know, my truth is my truth, but that doesn't mean it's the objective truth. 
And it means other people see the world differently. And therefore, we got to say, okay, I'm willing to set aside my biases, set aside my ethnocentrisms to apprehend the world through the lens of somebody else's and do so outside of judgment and do so and go, huh, this is interesting. I mean, I don't agree with this, but I get it because I'm of the mind that so long as your truth doesn't mean my oppression, then we can have different truths and that'd be totally fine. And this is the idea of a transcultural society that we're exchanged on each other's ideas. We build on each other's ideas, realizing that our worldview isn't fixed, nor is it objective. I think that the only way we can operate like that is to be empathetic. There is no other way. We have to have a skill set and a willingness to see the world through the lens of people who aren't ourselves. What's your favorite way of tapping into that from a marketing standpoint, I suppose? Not like you and I are having a conversation, you're wondering how I'm feeling and you're saying, hey, Mark, tell me how you're feeling. Yeah. Broadly, like if you're running a company or you're trying to tap into customers' opinions and values, what's your strategy? Yeah. You learn from the ways of comedians. They're so great at this. I write about this in the book too. They're so great at this. Comedians, especially observational comedians, they just watch people and they go, whoa, that was odd. That is... <laughs> That, that is not what is quote-unquote normal within my system of conventions and expectations, what that person just did. Oh, and she did it too, and he did it too, and they did it. Okay, this is a thing. Why is this happening? And they essentially take theory and apply it to the phenomenology they just observed. And they look at the phenomenon and apply theory to it to understand why is this happening. And they find a way to tell all the truth, but tell it slant, in the words of Emily Dickinson. And then they get on stage and say, Hey, you ever noticed that every time this happens, you do this? We go, oh, it's so me. I totally do that. Yeah, of course it's so you because they have achieved a level of intimacy through their ability to see the world through your lenses and make meaning through your meaning-making frames based on what they know of humanity. I mean, if we could be more like comedians, that's pretty awesome. What's your suggestion for becoming more like that? Because I, <laughs> I'm a big Seinfeld fan, even all these years later. In the earlier versions, he comes out and does a two-minute routine. That's right. And they're completely observational. And they're always completely spot on. And even relevant, you know, I don't know how long ago, 20 years ago, the show ended. So have you figured out how to do that, to be that observational? Well, I'm definitely not as good as Jerry Seinfeld, but <laughs> I tell you what I do pragmatically is I use Reddit, I use social networking platforms, because here are environments where people are practicing their cultural subscription. They're entering the discourse or into the dialogue with people like themselves, particularly on Reddit, because this is a community of communities. You get to observe people act like a community and you get to do it unobtrusively. And watch them collectively make meaning. And you go, wow, that was odd. And we leverage what we know of ethnographic research methods, right? grounded theory. We observe the behaviors and then we start to, to translate it, to interpret meaning. My doctoral training helped me get good at this. But from doing it a lot, both from academic perspective as well as a practitioner perspective, has helped me do this and sort of keep me in a state of curiosity to see how people see the world. Hey, Marcus, we're going to take a quick break here and move into what we call the heartbeat round to get to know a little bit more about you personally. I want to ask you, I don't know, a dozen questions, and we want you to answer these instinctively, like quickly, in other words, cleverly, in a heartbeat. Okay. Are you willing to go for it? Let's give it a shot. All right. All-time favorite hip-hop performer? Uh, All-time favorite hip-hop performer, Kanye West. One or two examples of organizations that have done a brilliant job of defining their brands and cultures. Apple. 
Mm. Your best piece of advice for building a brand and a following on social media? Identify who you are, how you see the world, and who sees the world the way you do. Find your congregation. Something powerful you learned directly from or by observing Jay-Z and or Beyonce? Ooh, that people may clown you today, but they might love you tomorrow. So don't put your faith and value in their hands. It's all in yours. Love that. A cultural value every organization should have. People first. The greatest new insight you specifically gained by writing your book. Ooh, that even people who study a thing and supposed to know it better than most, even they are prey to the effects that they have on people. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, culture is influential and it has influenced me in great, great ways, more ways than I even knew until I started writing the book. Got it. One book of any genre you wish everyone in the world would read. For the Culture by Marcus Collins. <laughs> <laughs> Alternatively, I would say Dan Ariely, Predictably Irrational. Your synonym for the word heart. Love. I would have bet a million dollars that was going to be your answer, even though it's not the answer most people come up with, having read your book and knowing your background. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Selfishness. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. Everything will be focused on community. The trait you admire most in other people. Humility. And the quality you consider most essential to your personal success. Service. Love it. These are great. Very, very thoughtful answers. Thanks for going through this with me. Uh, my pleasure. This whole conversation has just been really, really cool. And I'm sorry we have to end it here. But before we do, is there anything really important in your book that I neglected to bring up or an idea that you want to punctuate? For our audience, I mean, I'm really just giving you the final say here, if you will. Thank you so much. You did such a good job of framing this conversation. But I will say just as far as like the mechanics of the book, at the end of every chapter, except for the intro and the ending, I wrote a section called From No Why to Know How. And the idea is how you take these provocations and apply them. And that's what my hope of all this is, that they're not just ideas, they're not just uh, perspectives but that we can actually use these things. Because I think if we use these things, our world gets a little better, our companies get a little better, and our lives get a little better. So that's the hope. You've done some great work, Marcus. So on behalf of my audience, thank you for making this happen. I really, really appreciate it. Just great knowing you. My absolute pleasure. This has been a gift. Thank you. Before we say goodbye, I'd like to ask you to please introduce our podcast to just one friend or colleague this week. Word of mouth referrals, as you know, are just so incredibly powerful and the growth of our audience is the single greatest metric we use to validate our impact. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic Take the A Train, written over 80 years ago by Billy Strayhorn. Our version is performed by the BBC Big Band Orchestra. I want to thank my exceptional team, Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, Anna Boynton, and my sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. And I also want to thank all the employees and managers at Chevron. Finally, I leave you with my two consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.